Good evening to our neighbors and listeners. Coming to you live from the 215 here in Germantown, you are listening to the award-winning Germantown Info Hub Radio Hour. I'm community reporter Rashida Jamu, a.k.a. Philly's Freedom John. And I'm the community organizer for the Germantown Info Hub, Maleka Fruin, and I live here in Germantown with my family. The Info Hub Radio Hour explores everything happening in Germantown and the city of Philadelphia and covers them in an hour or less. You can check out what's going on by visiting our website at germantowninfohub.org, Twitter and Instagram at gtowninfohub, or on Facebook at Germantown Info Hub. I completed the Block by Block Radio Fellowship last year. This fellowship, organized by Philly Cam, trains Philadelphians to produce a community radio news program on WPPM LP 106.5 FM, which is Philly Cam's community radio station. The program covers issues affecting the Philadelphia area through interviews and news filed by program members. Each season, a new cohort selects the stories to tell and decides how to tell them. Today, we'll hear from Brad Linder, the radio news managing editor at PhillyCam and cohort leader, about the fellowship and my cohort members and locals, Kathy Brown and Kirsten Adams, about their experiences. Brad speaks more about what Block by Block is. So the program is now entering its uh, second, well, I guess we're in our second year. Um, We've done this three times. We're uh, just finishing off recruiting for our fourth cohort of Radio News Fellows. And um, because it's very much rooted in the community, uh, the first time we did it, we sort of built it from scratch. And so the first uh, set of fellows, one of the first things I, I said to them was like, hey, we need to come up with a name for this. Uh, I don't want to name it. I want you to help us name it. And so uh, that's what we did. Uh, we sort of um, asked people to sort of throw out different ideas for names. We voted on them. And the one that got the most votes was block by block. There were a couple of others that were very Philly. I think AO Philly was one that people were talking about. Uh, I can never say it quite right. Like AO Philly. And uh, I forget what some of the others were, but block by block sort of represented uh, one that really worked for the members of that initial cohort. And also when I took it to other folks at Philly Cam, they were like, oh yeah, now that really sort of speaks to what we're trying to do, which is cover the city by going out into the neighborhoods. The main goal is to create sort of these little communities of uh, reporters from the Philadelphia region representing stories from uh, their communities, you know, things that they want to talk about that we don't necessarily always hear enough about in the media. So there's um, multiple ways that I'd like to think of it. You know, we're, we're doing a couple of things. We're sort of building capacity. We're helping people develop skills that they may already have or helping people learn new skills. Um, But we're also trying to sort of fill a hole in the news landscape by saying, what are the stories that people who live in different neighborhoods in Philadelphia think do not get enough airtime? And can I tell those stories? That's not to say that like every story is like covering completely new ground. We cover some of the same stuff that you'll read about in the Inquirer that you'll hear about on NPR or KYWWRD. But I think there's something special about being able to say, hey, let, let me you know, provide you with the tools and the resources so that you can go talk to your friends, your neighbors, and bring voices to the air that we might not otherwise hear. And you get to set the tone of what are the stories that you want to tell. And so some people come to us because those are stories that they really want to tell, or they just want to like learn how to do this. And um, overall, you know, over the course of the four, four and a half months or so that we work together, we, we spend a little bit of a training period where uh, we bring around seven to 10 people together and sort of um, do the skills building and development. And then we quickly transitioned into like, hey, let's make a radio show. And the goal is that every season we have six episodes 
that are hosted and engineered by members of that cohort of community news reporters. As a journalist looking to grow my skills and enhance the different kinds of reporting that I do, Block by Block is a great opportunity to learn different ways to tell those stories. As a person who engages with news on a hyper-local level, I attribute success to my storytelling and journalism because it comes from people and things that I care about. Being on the ground, practically hand in hand, lifting the stories that Germantowners share with me is the thriving force behind the Germantown Info Hub. So when I joined Block by Block and felt the same spirit where news wasn't decided by folks, I'd probably never shared the same room with, but by the same people within these communities, I was gratified. But I was also instantly interested in how this fellowship influenced my cohort members' thoughts about the connections between community engagement and journalism. Kirsten Adams, who I grew really close with, and who also had a particular interest during her time with the fellowship in highlighting the arts, she interestingly, she interestingly enough stumbled across the Block by Block Fellowship on Facebook when she saw the post from no other than our very own Maleka Fruin, who was a part of the very first Block by Block cohort. So there's a lot going on here, y'all. Sorry. Kirsten, like myself, says that multimedia storytelling is really important, and so she's always looking for ways to build and strengthen her skills. Like me, Kirsten identifies the need to be rooted in community to produce quality storytelling, which is one of the reasons she enjoyed her fellowship experience. She wasn't hesitant to share what she felt she had learned about the link she had identified between community engagement and journalism. I'm realizing that there's a lot of journalists in Philadelphia who are not engaged with their community. That's what it made me realize, first of all, like how many stories come out from people who are observing a community without being in it? Um, how many stories come out with 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 that are done by uh, writers who are not from Philadelphia and who are offering perspective that is so unrelated to the community or, you know, just getting one or two testimonials from folks within the community without without but not being in it themselves, I'm like, ah, okay. So it really, it made me realize how important that to be a journalist, you really have to be on the ground. You have to like want to be in the community if you're not already in the community. And if you're not already in the community, do the work to get in it. Because I feel like as much as people will just share things with you, people love to just talk about themselves. People will love to just open up and give you their stories if you ask. But it's it's one thing to like just say, oh, give me your story. And it's another to say, I know that you're connected here. And I know that like someone told me about you Tell me your perspective. Tell me why this is important to you. So block by block, like really made you. And I think too, like your short deadlines. So it's like, you have to be connected to your community or know what's going on to have a story or else you're just pulling things out the wind. Like, oh, uh, I heard that this was going on. It's like, okay, well, how are you going to cover this? Who are you connected to? That's going to give you that story. Who are you connected to? That's going to like give you that interview. And it's like, oh, no one. Cause I'm not connected to anyone in that community. I have no idea. Like, you know, um, for instance, there was a story I wanted to do with the Double Dutch. Like, and I was like, okay, I luckily for me, I just go into an event where I saw them out. And I was like, okay, great. This is something that, thank God I'm in this community and I know who to reach out to. You were one of the people that's like, oh, I can give you their contact information. I was like, I have a community that will help me reach out. If you are not, if you are a journalist and you're writing or telling story, like doing audio stories, uh, and you're not in that community, you're not going to know who to talk to. You're not going to know who to reach out to you might just be like, hey, you know, like, will you speak to me? It's like, you, I don't have any trust with you. I don't know you. So I think that 
especially with an audio collection because i feel like that's even more personal for some reason than just like collecting someone's testimonial um for like a written story like audio it's like you have to have a conversation and you have to like know what's going on so i feel like for like in a, in a fellowship like this you have to be it's crucial that you're a part of your community it's crucial that you know what's going on to then have stories to report on but it's like you know to talk to people i feel like people are more willing to open up if they know you or they feel like they're coming from the same place as you so it's like hey i'm from this community and i'm interested in highlighting this can i talk to you and it's like yeah okay like that already that that, that breaks down so many barriers that when you have an interview with someone it's like oh okay we're coming from the same place you're a neighbor like i know you're from around here or something it's like it matters and I think I've seen that with some uh, papers and, and in journalism outlets all over the city. It's like you have writers, you have video videographers, you have storytellers who are not in their communities, but choosing to write about them. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. Kathy Brown, who I grew to call my Aunt Kathy, hey Aunt Kathy, is a two-time Block by Block fellow. She says she returned a second time to hone in on some of those skills that she struggled with the first time, like editing. But overall, she returned because it's a place where she gets to explore more of the emotional side of storytelling, like the piece she did on the Color Girls Museum, which is also her favorite piece that she's produced. For my Aunt Kathy, a huge benefit of this cohort is the varying ages and skill levels in the program. Aside from the technical advantages of collaborating with folks who can help you with equipment and story formation, she says it feels like an extension of the work she already does during the day. So for me, um, I'm blessed to work with senior citizens or you know, folks who are um, in a different generation than I am all the time. And so I really love the knowledge and the wisdom that they are able to share with me. Um, I try to be open ears as a storyteller and as a person trying to capture stories from others. I try to be open ears. And so um, I love that level of learning. I feel like life is a big uh, classroom and you're to learn something all the time, something new, something different um, to increase your knowledge bank. And so the intergenerational part is amazing for me. Um, and I love creating these relationships and I feel like that's what we did. That could be lifelong relationships as you're learning from one another. And then the same with young folks. I love that young folks have a uh, ability to at times simplify some things. Um, you know, in my, I call myself part of the sandwich community, meaning we are raising younger people and we're also taking care of our older, you know, um, elders in our family. So we're kind of squeezed in the middle. And so we don't really have a lot of time to explore how to do things differently. Pretty much if we know how to do it, we just kind of break our way through and get it done like that. Young people bring to the table an ability to simplify at times. And so um, it's a blessing to also you know, have them come along and say, hey, you don't need to do it that way. If you try it this way, this really works easier. So I'm, I'm appreciative of, you know, learning from both. 
Brad says that the intergenerational part is another intentional aspect of the program. He says bringing people together with more lived experience and people who are young, fresh, and have different ideas creates a really unique dynamic that allows people to learn from each other. He talks more about the diversity and how it impacts how the program produces its stories. You know, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about diversity in newsrooms, and often it does have to do with racial diversity, that when you have newsrooms where most of the decision makers are white men, you know, you're missing story ideas. And the same is probably true when we're talking about all older folks, whatever race we're talking about. Um, and so I think bringing together people who have more lived experience and people who are young and fresh and have different sorts of ideas, it really creates an interesting dynamic and allows people to sort of learn from each other. So I love it when somebody pitches a story. And, and usually when we have our, our meetings and we meet weekly during the course of the fellowship, somebody will come in and be like, oh, I kind of want to do a story on this, but I'm not sure who to talk to. And I do my best. I put on my thinking cap as somebody who's been covering Philly News for for a number of years to think, okay, well, here's some people we might want to talk to, but I absolutely love that other members of the group often pitch in too and have ideas that I hadn't thought of or wouldn't have. Um, and so I think it's really valuable that we sort of prioritize getting people who, you know, are in their twenties and thirties and forties and fifties. And, you know, for sensitivity reasons, the oldest we ask people is, are you in the 55 and up group? Um, so we, you know, I don't, I don't honestly know what the spread is, the widest uh, ages we've had, but, the youngest person who's come through block by block is still in high school. And then we've had people who are, you know, definitely in, in or closer to the senior citizen category and everything in between. And I do think that having um, this diverse group of people across a multi-generational cohort leads to more creativity and more thinking of different ideas outside of the box. And that goes both ways. It's not necessarily just a question of younger people might come in and be like, I don't have connections in the community and know who to talk to when I want to talk about, say, mural arts. Um, it might also be, you know, people who are a little bit older. Um, you know, we had a, a person who wanted to do a story about um, grieving. And originally the idea was that they would talk about senior citizens and grieving, but they were expanding to different kinds of grieving and having people of different um, ages and gender expressions in the group really sort of broadened that discussion about um, you know, sensitivities that certain folks in certain generations might not think about. And I think just having all these people in a room together sort of broadened everybody's view uh, in a way that just, it felt a little tense, but also ultimately I think very useful. Kirsten also affirms these thoughts about the environment and work intergenerational spaces produce. She also says that participating in an intergenerational space is important because it supports her thoughts about the necessary bond between community engagement and journalism, making the point that who you produce stories with behind the scenes is just as important as the audience. I think it was helpful. I think everything, like when you're working with people, of course, you're going to have challenges because you have multiple ideas and mindsets and backgrounds coming together, like trying to create one radio show um, with a bunch of different like segments in it. So of course there's gonna be like, oh, I don't know if we should run this. Then hey, like, you know, let's reframe this or retool this because it's not the most newsworthy or let's make sure that we're not offending people and making sure that we're putting out stories that are accurate and compelling or empathetic to a community. So I think that part was like a lot of fun, but I do enjoy working intergenerationally because I think within working within journalism, one thing that I'm constantly thinking about is who is the reader, right? Who am I reaching? Who's my demographic here? And if you limit yourself and say, well, I only want to write for young people, then you're like, there's a whole group of people who are not going to see your work. There's a whole group of people who aren't going to buy what you're selling. 
and you're limiting your scope. You're limiting what you can do. So for me, it was like, okay, I'm talking to more folks who are older than me, who are, you know, different generations than I am. And I'm learning about what's newsworthy to them, what's important to them. That way, when I go back into my own writing, I'm like, look, I want this to appeal to everybody. I don't want this to just appeal to young people or just to old people or older people or different generations, uh, folks in different generations. I don't want this to just appeal to men or women um, or cis people. I want my writing to be seen and to, or my work, my storytelling, my stories to be seen by everyone. I want it to matter to like my community and knowing who's in your community informs the work that you do and informs what's important and informs what need, the stories that need to be told. So I love working intergenerationally because it's so, it opens your mind up. It opens your, your perspective up to so many different things that you might not have known. Like, oh, this is important, right? And I think too, like learning from older generations about community and collaboration, what that looks like in the future. You know, I was, I was invited to community lead meetings being like, hey, we're having this meeting on this day. We're going to be talking about this. Come out. It's like, okay, I'm learning from, you know, my elders from this other generation about like the importance of attending community functions and pouring back into your community. So it was a constant way to learn about storytelling, what matters and like an emphasis on knowing your community. Block by Block's new cohort will begin in the coming months. While applications are closed now, check out phillycam.org in the coming months to see if a new cycle of applications has opened. On that same website, you can also take many one-off classes as a PhillyCam member to help you build your visual and audio storytelling skills. My Aunt Kathy lends advice to the incoming cohort. I would say come with an open mind, ready to learn, because there is a, a beautiful learning curve. And it's, you know, not just learning from the people in which you're interviewing, but learning from the other members of the group at that time. Um, and I know I had a, a wonderful lesson really that I learned from you, I think me and others, because we all walk a different walk in life. And all you need to do is just be open to learn. I, I call it my triple L, lifelong learning. Because if I don't walk your shoes and I don't know your path, but maybe if you're willing to share it in a loving way, I can still learn it and retain it because People will at times give you information, but they give it to you so harshly that you can't retain it. You know, I, I'm, I'm not open for how your spirit is trying to relate to me. So I'd be glad when you stop talking. How about that? But that being said, you know, when people get together and say, you know, it's important to me that you understand what I'm trying to say. And that's more important than me just having something to say. And we learned how to do that in our cohort. So I would just say, come with an open spirit, be ready to learn. Don't, don't try not to fear Reaper. <laughs> they will help you to break it down. Try not to fear the board because the, the board can feel a little intimidating. Except for me, I like to push buttons. I just don't want to mess up, but um, <laughs> just be ready to learn because there's plenty to learn and it's fun and learning and, and, be ready to meet some awesome people while you're doing it. For the remainder of this episode of the Germantown Info Hub Hour, we'll hear one of the episodes from the most recent cohort of Block by Block, originally aired on WPPM LP 106.5 FM. You may hear some familiar voices.
This is Block by Block, a community news program from WPPM-LP, Philadelphia 106.5 FM, where we explore issues affecting the Philadelphia area with news reports from members of the community. I'm Barbara Martin-Ellis. In the next half hour, we'll hear stories from our community news reporters about a youth power summit that brought local groups working with young people together, how different forms of grief can affect people, and a new art exhibition at the Free Library exploring aspects of the Black experience. But first, Block by Block reporter Brett Roman Williams has been looking into stories of people in our region seeking justice for unsolved homicides as part of a series called Left in the Dark. Today, he brings us the stories of two people who are at different points in their journey one who has seen their case resolved by law enforcement, and another who is still seeking answers about the murder of a loved one. For tonight's episode, we delve into a journey very close to my heart, the challenging path faced by families of unsolved homicides, a path I've walked since my brother Derek's untimely death. Meet Stanley Crawford, a father who turned his grief into action after his son's murder in 2018. Unlike many, Stanley's relentless pursuit led to justice for his son. The story is one of resilience, showing how determination and faith can bring change in even the darkest times. My name is Stanley Crawford. Most people call me Brother Stanley. September the 8th of 2018, 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, my son, William Aboje Shamir Crawford, waiting for his sister to open the door. There was these individuals stalking him to murder him. While waiting at the hospital for the unfortunate news of his son's passing, Stanley used this as an opportunity to console his loved ones. When we get to the hospital, in my spirit, I knew the inevitable had occurred. And what that was, that my son did not make it. The willing that took place once the doctor told us that my son did not make it was unbelievable. I did not have a chance to well because I was running around consoling as many people as I could during that period of time. While revenge could have been an option for Stanley and his loved ones, they chose another route, a route of compassion. I have resigned myself to not unleashing another murdering crew. I didn't want to bring the same pain and agony on another family. So I listened to my spirit and my spirit say, do the work that I've done in order to bring that information that was needed for law enforcement to do their job. And essentially, Stanley became his own detective. I had done enough work that I had created what I call a dossier on those participating in my son's murder. As I was doing research, I picked up more information about other people's murders. Other people, like Terry Jenkins, and her son, Tejan Jenkins, whose 2020 murder remains unsolved. Tejan was murdered on July 24th, 2020, on a Friday evening in the middle of the COVID pandemic. The moment Terry arrived at the hospital, the police had no answers for her. Uncertainty began to creep up on her. They took him to Presbyterian Hospital. I wasn't allowed in the hospital because it was COVID. What condition is my son in? And the police officers kept saying they didn't know. Now, Stanley's well-known in his community, right? His connections run deep. He managed to pull together crucial leads about his son's case, all from the neighborhood. But here's the thing. Even with that info in hand, both he and Terry hit roadblocks with the police. Makes you think, doesn't it? How that relationship between the streets and the cops really shapes these investigations. 
the homicide unit, their nonchalantness is another pain and agony that the family members have to deal with. Because when you have information and you're willing to give the information, but it falls on deaf ears, that's another nail in your emotional coffin. If the community, our community, the people that we're with every day, all day, that we watch and grow up, that we're watching their kids play, that we know their grandmoms and grandpas aren't given the information. If the detective is home in his bed at night when it happened, how is the detective going to solve the crime if the whole community turns their back? And the stories of Stanley and Terry, I see echoes of my own struggle for justice from my brother Derek. We were all entwined in Philadelphia's ongoing gun violence crisis, worsened by COVID-19 and deep-seated racial tensions by the police and the black and brown community. During that time frame, the pandemic, there was also the George Floyd incident. So it was protests going on. It was defunding the police going on. There was a surge and influx of crime, all kinds. And the city didn't have the police personnel to handle the crime. Both Stanley and Terry despite their different experiences with justice, bring unique insights into the debate on policies like defunding the police or the implementation of stop and frisk. The boy who killed my son, you think he could move around without weapon? Every stop and frisk is not a bad stop and frisk because that stop and frisk probably saved my life and somebody else's life. I don't think defunding the police department is going to benefit the causes that the people that demand it it's not going to benefit them the way that they think it should. It's going to get worse because now it may not be overtime. It may not be promotions. It may not be, let's hire some more police officers. So then crime will continue to rise. So where does this leave us? Stanley, he channeled his grief into action, creating the BMCC with the Black Male Community Council, turning his personal tragedy into a beacon of hope for others. Terry, she's made a big move starting anew in a different state. And me, I'm here, continuing to bring these stories to light because every story, every voice matters in our fight for justice and understanding. This is Brett Roman Williams, and you're listening to Left in the Dark on Block by Block. Stay tuned for more. When most people think about grief, they think about mourning the loss of a loved one but people can experience grief over many different sorts of losses. Block by Block reporter E. Marie Lambert brings us this story about how some people in our community are dealing with different forms of grief in their own ways. I spoke with Dr. Jamie Eady, known as Dr. J. She is a grief doula with the Anti-Violence Partnership in Philadelphia, as well as provides education, counseling, and direct end-of-life services for individuals or families with her own organization called Thoughtful Transitions. In her words, she is a grief doctor or grief whisperer and a death companion. There are a lot of titles that go with what I do. The academic title is a thanatologist, which is simply the scientific study of death, dying, grief, and bereavement. But I am also a public theologian, degreed in theology, and my work is simply to journey with people through grief and trauma so that they come out on the other side feeling more like themselves. And I journey with people toward their last breath. So not traumatic death, say out in the street, something happens violently, but 
just natural aging, we know that we don't live in these bodies forever. And so what does it look like to prepare for your last breaths? I wanted to know how she manages the weight of other people's bereavement without feeling sad or burdened. She says that this work is her calling and ministry. I'll say this, 75% of the time, I do really well. I am able to be with you in your grief, and I honor the practices and rituals that help me with my own grief, as well as help me sort of let go of sometimes the heaviness that comes with being with people in grief. But when she finds herself being pulled under, she sticks to a strategic ritual of self-care practices that includes all things lavender for its calming properties. She seeks the companionship of close friends that are intentional about lifting her from the blues and her last dose of television before bed are syndicated sitcoms like Living Single and Golden Girls. She also sees her therapist regularly. Dr. J also shared her recommended strategies for supporting a loved one or a friend during the grieving process. Give people the full range of emotions that are due to them. Space to name, space to feel, recognizing there's no timetable, and then don't try to fix. You can't replace what has been lost. I don't care if they get another spouse. I don't care if they get another job, if they have another child. You cannot replace the thing that has been lost. And so don't go in trying to fix. Go in with the idea that I want to be with you in your pain. And I think that's where we start our journey with accompanying people through grief. That was Dr. Jamie Eady. Here's the story of a young woman who talks about grieving a former lifestyle. Allende Jenkins is 32 years old, and less than a year ago, she suddenly became the guardian of five of her young cousins. She says when she identified the emotions she was feeling as grief, she was able to give herself the grace she would afford someone that recently experienced a loss. I was thinking of grief as the loss of something physical or a person. Now, I think of that a little differently. I'm dealing with myself in a way that I would deal with an individual who did lose someone that is very close to them. So being kind to myself, extending grace to myself, celebrating some of those small wins and even celebrating some small losses. But it's changing the way that I'm dealing with it because before I was just pushing things down. Like, this is a part of being an adult. It's hard. You lose people, you lose things, life goes on. Girl, like, keep going. But then I'm like, hold on, wait a minute. Grief has many faces. While Allende grieves the loss of a lifestyle and accepts her new role as a parent, Dion Carroll speaks about a friendship breakup that felt like a death. I had a friend a wonderful music friend in, in our urban world. We call him homies. <laughs> he was my cut-up partner. What happened was he began to date. Nothing wrong with that. There was no love interest on our part. But when he began to date, obviously there's more time with her. I didn't have a problem with that, but I no longer had a best friend. He like totally severed as if I never existed. So when this particular loss happened, it felt like abandonment. It felt like you left me. It felt like rejection. Did you recognize that loss as grief or were you just angry and hurt? I did grieve the loss 
of the friendship. I didn't really get angry. I was just immensely sad. I said, I can't believe that this is happening, but I've accepted because if he's happy, I only want the best for you. I think it would be very wrong of me to wish you ill will or like, "Mm -mm, I know how to move on. I know how to still love you and not let you back in, (laughs) but I still miss all the good times. Connecting the emotions of profound losses with the station of grief seems to give those that experience them permission to feel without guilt or shame and to treat themselves with care and compassion. I spoke to Shangle Jamal Lewis about the recent passing of his mother. He was her only child and she was his only parent. Before his mother died last summer, she had battled and survived cancer years before. Shangle talks about grief during that process and how grief is ongoing. So there's a lot of grief that goes on and just the uncertainty of it all makes you grieve the normal life, the life that existed before that diagnosis came. As the only child, where did you find support for your grief and how did you manage it? I tried to keep everything else normal, and I also tried to keep my interactions with my mother as normal as could be, meaning you want to be sensitive to that individual. If they want to talk about it, that's something different. But I wanted life to be as normal as it could be, given that very undesirable situation. I had to say to her, let's not make every single conversation just about this illness. Shango shared that his experience as an only child made him acutely aware that he was now an orphan. He was alone in his loss and in his grief. There was no sibling to commiserate. He acknowledges that grieving is as unique as fingerprints. He suggests being patient with yourself and to extend grace to yourself and others that are well-meaning in their efforts to pull you from a dark place. He says that grief is not linear, it has no order, and that grief will be with you in some form for the rest of your life. Whether you are grieving the loss of a person, a job, a relationship, a life you had or had anticipated, your grief is valid. This piece is a preview of a longer radio special that E. Marie Lambert is producing for WPPM, exploring different aspects of the grieving process. More details about that special will be coming soon. Visitors to the central branch of the Free Library on the Parkway will soon see art from local Black artists in the hallways. It's part of a new exhibit curated by Doriana Diaz, a Germantown-based visual artist. Block by Block reporter Kirsten Adams spoke with Diaz about the exhibit, which opens this week. Doriana Diaz is concerned with the in-between spaces, the spaces between race, gender, and sexuality that remain gray and are still unexplored. In her latest exhibit, opening November 17th at Parkway Central Library, Diaz and 11 other Black artists elaborate through photography, film, collage, and more on what it means to exist within the in-between. Before that, Diaz joined me in Aubrey Arboretum to talk about the creativity that comes from operating in gray spaces and her hopes for attendees exploring the show. I just wanted to tap into that space that is the in-between. I think for so many of us that life is really black and white and it becomes very absolute. 
and I really wanted to focus on the nuance and complexity of black life. That's where I think the sweetest parts are, is in the in-between spaces. Um, there have been times in my life where I have felt really in-between or inside out or unknowing about belonging or what home means or what community means. And so it's sort of like a investigation of those spaces in the in-between where it's not this or that or absolute. It's in that gray area, which I think is a really important place to be. And I think that it's what has served our survival in a lot of ways is operating from that gray space. So the spaces in the in-between is kind of catering to like what that idea means, how we live with that, how we embrace chaos, how we embrace blackness, how we make presence with blackness, the fullness of it, the complexity of it, all of that. And so that's kind of where the idea for the in-between spaces came. And I think that in some ways the work within the exhibition was created by these artists from that space. And so I really wanted to highlight those creations. And I know for me, a lot of my work has come from this exciting place of like having a deep and high understanding of self and connection to something bigger than me that allowed me to create those pieces. So I think that that is where the name came from. And I hope that that's what's expressed in the exhibition and that viewers can start to tilt perspective in regard to like how do we live from this space instead of being in such absolutes how can we embrace nuance we've been working on this exhibition for five months total and it's been like on my spirit much longer than that and so I think that there is a correlation between art and libraries I also think that the collection of art that libraries carry is extremely beyond. Like if you go to particular sections in the library and you look for even just books around collage, there's hundreds of them that you can check out or sit in the library and look through. So there's access to the arts. It's inherently there. The point of it is to continue to forge a more public understanding about the importance of those spaces. And that's why I'm really excited to be hosting this exhibition in a library instead of like, you know, a traditional gallery space. It's been really exciting and almost really dreamlike, actually. I think the closer that I get to the launch of it, the more proud I become of the opportunity. Like a lot of this credit goes to my contributing artists that they trusted me enough with their work to put it in the space for four months, you know, and have it be present in the world for people to view it. And I think this is really incredible because there's a lot of heavy access. Like, people use that hallway where this art will be displayed a lot. You don't have to pay to see this exhibition. You don't have to even know that you're going to see the exhibition. You just happen to be walking down the hallway because it connects different parts of the library together. So I'm really hoping and I feel really honored to be able to have that space, to have blackness exist there for that amount of time. My hope and desire is for people to honor that space no matter who walks through it and that those who do walk through it know their place. I really want there to be genuine relationships built from this opportunity that go beyond and well into the future so that we can continue to make this a community practice and a very intentional community practice is to insert ourselves in spaces where we wouldn't normally be seen and show everything that we are. 
So I really hope that, yeah, relationships birth from this. I really hope that people walk away with a deeper understanding of self, a deeper understanding of what community can look like, especially from the lens of developing an artistic practice. And I also just really hope people walk away feeling loved just a little bit more, you know? Those are my hopes. As a non-traditional educator, I'm always looking for opportunities that empower young people. So not too long ago, I traveled to Senator Art Haywood's inaugural Youth Power Summit in Germantown, where I was surrounded by organizations eager to help young people carve out their paths to success. First, I spoke to Senator Haywood and then other vendors who shared the stories behind their initiatives and how they're making a real impact on the lives of our youth. We're at MLK High School for our first Youth Power Summit. We were able to invite over 90 young people. We have 30 different organizations that provide services to young people. We have a number of workshops. I'm getting ready to go to a workshop on entrepreneurship, but there's one on creative arts and mental health. Many of the um, interesting to young people. Many of the organizations wanted to let young people know about career training. How you doing? My name is Steven Shears. Our company is called Building Businesses for Kids. We help the kids understand that they can make a business around the things that they're into. So whether they want to build the sneakers themselves, whether they want their own sneakers, or whether they want to resell the sneakers and stuff themselves. So we help them figure out what path they want to do, and then we help them understand how to build their business around it. Also help them understand that their life altogether is the business. It's not just the business and then their life can be separate. My name is Jay Bagley. I'm with Skylark Motion Incorporated, which fly unmanned aircrafts. Drones? Drones. So it's innovative and it's an opportunity for our community to get engaged with hundreds of jobs that are being produced through drones. The police department's just registered to fly drones. If a student wants to be a lifeguard, at Atlantic Ocean, they're flying drones to rescue people or to see if any sharks is in the water. We're using drones in construction. We're using drones in the news. We're using drones to do real estate and so much more. So this is our opportunity because of this technology is innovative that we can put in our kids' hands and they can have a better quality of life. My name is Dominique Butler-Jones. I am the Youth and Young Adult Navigator. I'm here representing the Pennsylvania Career Link. What brought me here, you know what, is just for the empowerment and the embetterment of our youth. Letting them know about so many great resources and opportunities that are out there. A lot of our youth want, but they don't know where to go. And that's what we want to let them know is for those who are looking for educational next step opportunities, looking for employment, just to bring some income to help support their families. They can come to CareerLink and get those supportive services, but also CareerLink is connected with everyone. We're here as a community to serve our community, and that's what my passion is. And so if a young person came to CareerLink, what might they find? 
Oh, they would find a lot of things. We work with a lot of apprenticeship opportunities, training opportunities. Uh, youth can come in at CareerLink and just sit down with us, and we can help them find employment, get them connected to other great resources for scholarship opportunities, for next steps post-high school, for those who do need to go back to school, maybe get their GED high school diploma. We connect them there as well, too. There's so many opportunities. Other groups were there to let young people know about services that help with schoolwork. I'm Dante Timbers. I'm with uh, Voice. That's Victoria's Urban Outreach Tutoring Service, which is a nonprofit. We currently do free tutoring at the Treehouse on Mondays, and we're looking for volunteers, please. And what age group you're tutoring? Is there like a specialty, STEM or anything, or is it just come one, come all? The goal is to really help everyone, but as far as educational, academic tutoring services, we try to keep that K through 12, but as far as information, we try to span that to everyone in all ages. And some spoke about a different kind of youth power, civic engagement. Hi, my name is Sarita Lewis, and my organization is Urban Seek. We actually do community and civic engagement, working with high school students to empower them so that when they are of leadership age, they'll be able to step into the shoes properly. So what we do is work with high school students who are interested in learning about civics. We teach them about the difference between civic engagement and community engagement and how they blend and how they can actually make the community better based off of the things that they care about. We do a lot of voter education programming because that really is one of the stepping stones necessary. But we also teach them about their communities and give them points of pride so that they can be really excited about where they live. And for some young people, advocating for the issues that matter to them can become a paying job. Hello, my name is Maria Mendez. I was born and raised in South Philly. I am 19 years old. I personally, as a youth, struggled a lot with just a lot of neglect from the system, from my personal family. And so, you know, just a lack of resources made me unmotivated to, like, just want to be, like, even go to college. I didn't even think I was, like, enough to go to college. And so... When I was 16, um, George Floyd was murdered, and I went to the protests because I wanted to. Like, I was like, what the hell is happening? Like, I want to be a part of this movement. And so then Juntos, the organization that I'm currently tabling with here, invited me to walk with them. And so ever since then, I became a part of their youth group. And from there, I worked with them for a year fighting with their Sanctuary Schools campaign where um, it all started because a mother got picked up from ICE outside of a public school and teachers didn't know what to do. And so Juntos was just like, what the heck? Why didn't the school know what to do? And then they started looking into the issues that happened in their school. So we notice right now, like, a lot of schools suffer from asbestos. We have lead in our water, but schools are going to put metal detectors in and not even give us clean water. We don't have access to nurses or counselors while we're at school, but um, there sure as hell will be a cop at our school criminalizing us. And so that's why I started getting more involved. After that, I became an ambassador at Juntos, which is a, Juntos does a lot of youth leadership development. And pretty much what an ambassadorship is at Juntos is youth get to work two to three hours a week and then get a stipend at the end of the ambassadorship. You can find a list of all the groups that participated in the Youth Power Summit by visiting senatorhaywood.com slash event slash youth dash summit dash 2023. That's the numbers two, zero, two, and three. 
This season of Block by Block is produced by Kirsten Adams, Rashida Jamu, Kathy Brown, Kami Kong, Emarie Lambert, and Brett Roman Williams. And I'm your host, Barbara Martin Ellis. Emarie Lambert is our board operator tonight. Brad Linder is radio news manager for WPPM. Peter Liu is radio operations manager, and Allison Durham is WPPM's radio program manager. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of Block by Block, featuring more stories about issues affecting life in the Philly region. You can find past episodes of the show on Philly Cam SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Consider supporting Philly Cam this Giving Tuesday on November 28th by making a donation to support our community radio station, WPPM 106.5 FM. WPPM provides people in Philadelphia and South Jersey with opportunities to broadcast their own non-commercial radio programs and present content that's hyper-local, educational, thoughtfully crafted, and rich in personality. Donors like you support diversifying Philadelphia's media landscape by empowering everyday media makers to tell our own stories. We're hoping to bring in 100 unique contributions, and all donors' names will be entered in our Given Tuesday raffle, featuring a gift basket of treats from friends of PhillyCam. You can make a donation at phillycam.org support. Well, Germantown, it is about that time. If you want to share story ideas or information with the Germantown Info Hub, please email gtown.infohub at gmail.com. And you can also keep up with us on social media at Gtown Info Hub on Twitter and Instagram and Germantown Info Hub on Facebook. Additionally, you can read our stories at germantowninfohub.org. And we encourage listeners to text the Equally Informed Philly text line, which is another program under Resolve Philly. It allows Philadelphians to access information regarding Philadelphia services. The Equal Info Line is a free bilingual English and Spanish question and answer texting service that provides subscribers with vetted local news and resources. To ask questions, text Equal Info, which is two words, to 215-910-4040 or type in joinsubtext.com slash equalinfo215 on your web browser. Equally Informed also supplies a community-driven print newsletter that's available at health centers and libraries all over the city. And that is about it. Once again, I'm Rashida Jamu, the reporter for the Info Hub. And I'm Maleka Fruin. Thank you to our guests for speaking with us today for today's show. And as always, thank you to our neighbors for always listening and engaging and allowing the Info Hub to serve you. And until next time, good night, Germantown. Good night, Germantown.